Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. I'm Tara Beth Leach. And I'm Mark Quanstrom. And we're continuing uh, season three, episode three, talking about the relationship between our theological vision and the practice, how we do church. And we're talking in particular about salvation, soteriology, about how we understand uh, salvation our Lord is offering us or gifting us, uh, to say it one way. Um, Last week, I talked about uh, putting on um, uh, popular Reformed soteriological clothing, which really didn't fit. And um, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, working out of a position of authenticity driven by a particular theological vision. And we thought we would continue that conversation more particularly today with Beth Falker-Jones, a theological professor at Northern, and I invite her in to be the theologian in residence to talk about this particularity regarding salvation, uh, the difference between a transactional understanding of salvation and uh, what we're calling a relational, formational understanding. Um, And this is driven by uh, uh, popular evangelicalism, which kind of reduces the Christian faith it is inclined to. It doesn't always, but I think the temptation is for every tradition to reduce it to kind of a mental ascent, uh, a confession of Jesus as the Lord, and having uh, received the ticket to salvation. Um, that's, that's kind of a very, I don't know, how would you say it? That's a caricature a bit of transactional over against relational formational. So, but we've invited Beth to talk about it. Uh, Beth, how would you differentiate between transactional understandings of salvation and what we are calling relational formational? Yeah, uh, I could probably talk for a long time. So Which would be fine. You just feel free to <laughs> interrupt me and cut me off. You know, I think um, it helps me to understand the idea of a transactional view of salvation. Uh, if I think about why we might be attracted to that, uh, and for those of us who are located in individualistic, Mm -hmm. capitalism-led sorts of context and cultures. Mm. I think a transaction is especially um, attractive. (laughs) Uh, It's something we imagine an individual can uh, conduct, right? Mm. Just as I could go and buy a piece of gum at the shop, I can get salvation by paying my magic Jesus prayer, right, Mm -hmm. Um, that I I say uh, at the altar. And we like transactions, if we're individualist and and capitalist, because we imagine that they are neat, I think, and can be controlled and don't really demand much of us, right? Hmm. Um, uh, If I hire someone to perform X service for me, uh, they owe me certain things 
uh, I just pay. Um, right. I don't need to put my myself in. Um, and I imagine that uh, I can ask for exactly what I want as the outcome. Uh, and uh, I don't have to deal with whatever messy realities might be involved in the, the life of the person I'm paying. Hmm. Um, I think that that goes pretty deep uh, to the heart of why we like this transactional uh, thing, right? Uh, we think it... Um, is just for us as individuals and it protects us from relational messes. Uh, because if we understand salvation relationally, it's going to be messy, right? That's that's what relationships are. Um, and they make demands on us that we didn't expect or imagine. Uh, and they require us to uh, step out of our own point of view uh, and into the point of view of others uh, and then to get from relational to formational, mm-hmm. they change us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's in relationship with one another that we are shaped and and formed. Uh, you know, the thing that says people look like their dogs, right? <laughs> um, or spouses start to look like each other after after decades. Um, we we become like right mm-hmm. those we're mm-hmm. in intimate uh, relationship with. Um, and it's going to make demands on us, and it's also going to be communal uh, rather than just me and what I want. Um, that's one way I would think it through. Um, so, so transactional understanding of a primarily transactional understanding of salvation means that I have mm-hmm. prayed the prayer, mm-hmm. I have read the track, I have gone to the altar. And I am now accepted into the kingdom, or I'm a part of. I mean, I have. I'm, I've got my ticket to heaven, and that's most of the work. That's we'd love. I think sometimes to make it all of the work, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so okay, that we that's there all the work. no further demands on us. Uh, that's always been a, a misrepresentation of the gospel um, and of uh, the biblical witness to salvation. But it's one we've been tempted to. Uh, a lot. And uh, who doesn't want to get out of most of the work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, check a little box and have it done. Um, and then continue doing what we want to do. Um, what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace or mm-hmm. other people identify in other ways. Yeah, I can't help but think of the way of the cross teachings from Mark's gospel, um, beginning in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, where Jesus um is perplexing uh, to the disciples when the focus turns to grim as he starts talking about the Son of Man must suffer and die, carry his cross, um, be given into the hands of authorities. And in these teachings, what Jesus is communicating that is, is if you, you are my disciple, um, you also will suffer. You also must carry your cross. Um, which again is completely antithetical to this transactional way of thinking of salvation. Um, it moves from a cognitive proposition or a cognitive assent to this call that has a demand to it that is anything but cheap. And who wouldn't like to get out of that at least sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, pay someone else to carry the cross for you. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a cash transaction, mm-hmm. um, and it's. About as reductive as you can get in terms of thinking about salvation. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me that my instruction in evangelism was 
was mostly premised on this kind of transactional understanding of salvation. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. As I mean, so I mean, pick pick a evangelistic program, or the Roman Road, or mm-hmm. uh, the Four Spiritual Laws, mm-hmm. or the Kennedy Evangelism Explosion. Mm-hmm. Where would you go tonight if you were to die? Mm-hmm. That the evangelism has been mostly focused on receiving from Christ what we need for our salvation. And evangelism has not really been much about following, Mm -hmm. has it? It's been about deciding. I think Mm -hmm. that's right. Um, And again, I think we think we can control that, right? If you can reduce something to four steps, four laws, uh, then it's... uh, we imagine it as transactional and in our control um, rather than being big and messy and mysterious and so on. Um, there's, I think there's a couple interesting historical factors here. Um, the first goes back to the Protestant Reformation, where I think the reformers are trying to interrupt a transactional view of salvation, hmm. right? Which says, do this, progress yeah. on the ladder towards yes. becoming more and more mm-hmm. like God so that you can uh, be ready ready to see God. And they right. do interrupt it, but maybe not enough, hmm. right? Um, they, uh, they change the cycle, but I'm not sure they throw out the cycle entirely in, in a way that might be called for. Um, and then I think the other thing historically is... Uh, the emergence of evangelicalism, right, uh, in uh, the great revivals of the likes of Whitfield right. and Wesley mm-hmm. and so on, happens in a context where everyone kind of already is a Christian, right. kind of, sort of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very different thing for Wesley to stand up and say, um, do you want to uh, go in in a way and with Jesus that you haven't got in before, right? right. That, that maybe calls for personal and formational. It's a different thing to say that to people who have been baptized and are kind of Christians, maybe, than it is to say it to people who are in a secular culture um, and, and and haven't thought this through in any way, as though it were the intro. I, what I'm trying to say there is just this. Uh, when the the camp meeting, the altar call starts, right. it's not the intro to Christianity, right? It's, it an, it's an intervention mm-hmm. in the lives wow. of people who are already Christians. Wow. And we've turned it into the intro. So in, our, in the Nazarene church, uh, the early Nazarene fathers said one of the tasks for the Nazarene church is to re-Christianize Christianity. Mm. This is the late 19th, early 20th century. And so the the message was formulated not different from Wesley's. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mission was not different from Wesley's mission, where you presume on a Christian understanding, uh, and, and, and so you're basically calling people to be more committed to what they have already understood or embraced, right? Is that fair? That seems right. And so then, so but now we're no longer there. Mm-hmm. But we still have reduced uh, uh, entrance into Christianity to this kind of volitional ascent yeah. to yeah. Uh, what they may not understand very well at this point. Part of the theologian language here is uh, justification and sanctification, right? right? Justification, uh, which points to our adoption into Christ, right? The new birth, the the entrance. Um, And sanctification, which points to that long-term formational, relational uh, change in our lives. Um, 
And uh, we've focused almost entirely on justification uh, when I think in a lot of ways your Dazarine uh, right. fathers or, or your Wesley are, are worried more about sanctification uh, or at least more about the whole package altogether. So. I became a Christian through the ministry of Youth for Christ. Uh, I was, you might say I was a, I was a cultural Christian. Uh, we, we went to church a couple of times a year. And it was through this type of transactional evangelism that Jesus did get a hold of my life. All mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Good. And, and so one of the things that I'm struck is that, struck by is that even with sometimes our anemic theo- theology, um, and our very anemic way of thinking about ev- evangelism, God's grace is still working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those people mm-hmm. um, that I would not be standing here today. And yet, I also can't help but think about how not long after that, I was trained in this way of evangelism. Um, I remember sitting in uh, basements um, with other Youth for Christ students and leaders going through different methods of this type of evangelism. And we would practice it on each other. We would we would hmm. um, turn towards one another, and I would pretend that this person that I'm talking to who's my friend is someone else, is a stranger, and I'm trying to lead them to Jesus. And I still can't help but think about how God used that, mm-hmm. how God worked in that, how so many of my friends came to faith during those days. And so in some ways, it's so hard for me to get away from the goodness and grace of God in that. And at the same time, I know that we are seeing a reaction against that today. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people my age um, who experienced that, you know, this this evangelism explosion in the 80s and 90s um, are now angry because they realize that it was a cognitive proposition without the call to carrying your cross because they're realizing that some of those people that that uh, proposed that way of Christianity, um, they are now seeing that their witness is anything but the way mm. of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so evangelism has now become a dirty word. Mm-hmm. It's become a word that you don't dare say. It's become something that is seen as an act of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm constantly wrestling with is because I believe in evangelism mm-hmm. um, and I long, I yearn for it to be reclaimed for a new day. And so my question to both of you is, what is that? What is that? How do we reclaim evangelism for a new day? Well, God is not constrained, for sure. He can use the four spiritual laws, and he can use the Roman road, right? Mm -hmm. And people came to faith under Kennedy's evangelism explosion, for Mm -hmm. sure, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But the Lord can't stop working or didn't stop working in your life, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, With that encounter with the Lord, Mm -hmm. um, you realized that this was not the end, but rather the beginning, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Your question is, how do we reclaim evangelism Mm -hmm. in light of a relational formational? That's right. Mm -hmm. That's Um, exactly. And I'm I'm struck by Beth's multiple references to the messiness 
of relationships and the messiness of formation and how transaction is controllable by us. I mean, we're in charge of the transaction, Mm -hmm. right? Mm I have accepted Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So what if evangelism uh, becomes less cut and dried? What if evangelism becomes an invitation of exploration or an invitation to follow a way Uh, an invitation to open up your life to the possibilities that you had never experienced. What if that would be evangelism, which which, which people would be drawn to by the winsomeness of your relationship with the Lord? Um, I've, I've always been a little bit afraid of evangelism, which seemed so... Uh, st- sterile or so um, cut and dried, so mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. unmessy. Mm-hmm. Even the idea, go to a stranger, right? Um, now, God can and does use that, mm-hmm. but uh, that is delightfully unmessy, right? If I am talking to a stranger and they accept the gospel, and then I say, "Go find a local church," and Correct. I walk away. <laughs> I'm no longer no, no longer implicated there. So I, I think this question, I and mean, I'm so glad you said that, Terabeth, is um, one of the most important questions for the church in the U.S. right now. How do we reclaim evangelism? Um, uh, understanding salvation is a lot bigger than we've sometimes seen it um, when we when we do evangelism. How do we think about it as relational, and formational, and and messy? Um, and I'm not anti-altar call. Um, right. I'm anti-reductive altar call. Uh, and I think um, I see why people are angry and, and want to reject that sort of whole tradition. Uh, I have hope that we don't reject it, but that we rethink it, yes. right? That we rethink it, um, exactly it. Uh, with more theological faithfulness and richness. Uh, I think in the Wesleyan revivals, we see whole groups of Christians rethinking the thing for a moment, for a time and a place. And we've tried to take something that belonged to that moment and move it to every moment wow. mm-hmm. when we need to rethink it in, wow. in each context and each time uh, and, and place. And if we let go of it, yeah, I mean, what's left, right? Mm-hmm. If Jesus isn't going to change our lives, if people aren't going to commit to Jesus and have their lives changed, right, mm-hmm. um, then we might as well, you know, uh, join a country club instead of a church um, because we're just a nice group of people hanging out together. So a church driven by a relational, formational soteriology has to understand itself differently than a church that is thinking in terms of salvation in primarily transactional terms, right? Yeah. Which seems to me to be a lot harder work for the church. It's 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 hard work and it's scary. But, you know, maybe on the most basic practical level, instead of sending the evangelism team to street corners to talk to strangers, um, you talk to people about how to talk to people that they actually know and are in relationship with, which is very scary and messy because um, that's going to impact a relationship that, that matters to you. Um, but uh, it also makes a lot of sense if we're talking about an interpersonal, interrelational uh, reality. So I'm thinking about a baptism uh, several years ago um, where uh, 
um, 30 odd per, 30, 30 year old odd person who had been addicted to uh, addicted to drugs um, came to the Lord, came to faith. Mm-hmm. All right, and on Easter wanted to be baptized. Good choice of date. Yeah, we always baptize on Easter. We mm-hmm. loved it. We did, not only Easter, but we always baptize on Easter. So um, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but I mean, he was still fighting addictions, um, and I think it was I think I, I think it was uh, prescription drug addiction, which is really really hard to get off of. Mm-hmm. Well, he got so nervous about being baptized uh, that he got high before he came to church to get baptized. And so I didn't know this. Uh, he he was a you know he was a operational addict, mm. and uh, he did stumble up the stairs to the baptistry, which I thought was just because he had the gown on, the baptismal robe on, and he was baptized. And then he came later that week and confessed to me that on Easter Sunday he was high when he was baptized into the faith. Well. You're not supposed to do that. That's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to mostly have your act together when you get baptized, right? And so we baptized this guy into the faith while he was high because he was so nervous about being in front of the church and being baptized. That's a great well, story. So, yeah. we, of course, this is the first time I've said this, and everybody in my church is going to think, I wonder who that was. <laughs> it was several years ago, so you you will not know who it was. But um, that kind of messed with my soteriology is, mm. is, I mean, what's baptism? Baptism is entrance into a way of life, is mm-hmm. a, it entrance into a way of following. Mm-hmm. Now, he was every bit as determined to be free from a drug addiction um, and empowered by baptism, I want to say. Uh, but he certainly had a long way to go in reference to being formed by Christ. Mm-hmm. But isn't that every one of us in some way, right? We come to the waters a mess. Um, uh, not to say that that mess doesn't matter, uh, but this guy you're talking about at least uh, was self-aware enough to come and confess and repent the next week. Um, oh, he, it was, it so was many of us are, so don't funny. have that much. And, uh, it's not it's not a perfectly linear thing. Um, I think linear also fits with transactional. That's right. right? Um, and relational, again, is more messy. Back, forth, up, down. Wow. What was this? I don't know. But God was at work um, is truer from my own experience, at least, than uh, start, get better, get better, get better, get better, end, right? Um, oh, yeah. It's not an – it's not a – it's not an uninterrupted progression toward Christ-likeness. It is not. This faith of ours. Mm-hmm. And that's not cheap grace. That's human messiness. Wow. Right. So the transactional is easier, and it doesn't involve relationships with others, right? And we kind of, they're kind of the ones responsible for their salvation, Right, we're not necessarily responsible for their salvation because they've got to decide to follow or mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and you can you can do you can do that. I think you could, and I think a lot of I think we have been tempted to do that. Mm-hmm. 
allow folk to be anonymous participants in a congregation, believing that they have Jesus in their heart and no further relational work is required. Mm-hmm. Um, the transactional ahead. evangelist only has to say, have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which is not, right. I mean, that's enough. That's hard. Right. But a relational evangelist has to love someone who says, go away. I don't want to hear that. Um, right. And who says, I'm interested in that. And also, I'm getting high tonight. Um, and who surprises and delights you and then disappoints you and frustrates you. And uh, yeah, mess again, I think. And it's slower. Slower. Oh, it's slower. It's slower because oh. this is long haul work. We only have capacity for so many people to walk with like this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we would rather do it to the masses. You which can't again, do 10,000. Yes. Yeah. yeah which mm-hmm. again, in the mm-hmm. masses, like I absolutely believe. Yeah. But my hope is that in the masses, is that there are people out there with those who are receiving this good news to walk with them for the long haul. You know, when I go to Walmart and I can't find the flower, um, you know, someone will just say, uh, yeah, somewhere over in aisle seven. But when I go to Trader Joe's um, and I can't find it, they say, let me walk with you and take you there. And we need more Christians seeing the work of evangelism like that. Let me walk with you for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, nice. yeah. let's figure this out together. Let's let's work through this together. Um, and as you said, Beth, the ups, the downs, um, the sideways moments, the valleys, the mountaintops, the moments where, um, like, wow, like we're we're getting this, and then, whoa, where'd you go? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the long haul work we're invited into. And a huge encouragement for me there is that is like God, right? Um, God is patient, mm-hmm. uh, not wanting anybody mm-hmm. to be lost. Uh, God, God has a lot more patience than we do, but we can hope for some. In the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Well, so that's a lot more demanding for the pastor, I think, mm-hmm. to create a culture in which the congregation, the fellowship of believers, understands salvation not as as uh, uninterruptedly progressive to Christ-likeness, but is willing to accommodate the ones who fall away or do not live up to the standard or uh, disappoint or live beneath the call. Um, it, so t- two more stories. Um, we received membership into uh, the church, my previous church in Belleville, and I made the mistake of not saying, well, those who have gone through membership class come forward. I made the mistake of saying, well, all those who would like to join Belleville first come forward. And there was a young couple who had been attending maybe four weeks uh, living together. And they looked at each other and said, we like this church. Let's join. And every, I mean, it was a small enough church we all knew. And so they came up in front with the others who had gone through membership class to join the church that morning as an unmarried couple. Well, you know, you're not supposed to not be married and be a member of the Nazarene church. And I had to make a decision that morning. Did Was I going to call them out? In not front married of, and living together. Yeah, they weren't yeah. married and yeah. living together. Yeah, yeah they yeah. weren't married and living together. And but they were out of they they were brand new to the Christian faith. They were they were not. This was so new to them. So it was a here am I moment. It was, 
And I had to make the decision. Am I going to say, well, no, strictly speaking, you know, we can't receive you as a member into the Nazarene church because you're not married. You need to get married first. Or was I going to receive them into membership? And I thought, there's no way I'm going to shame them or embarrass them in front of everybody. And I, fortunately, I had been at the church long enough. They trusted me. And we received this unmarried couple as members into the Nazarene church that morning. And they just were so happy. They were so excited to be a part of that community of faith, to be uh, received. Well, I knew what I had to do then. I had to go to their house that next week. And I'd say, well, tell me your story. And they told me their story. And before I could say anything else, she said, yeah, and we're thinking we really do need to get married. And so I was able to officiate at their marriage, a mm-hmm. couple that had been mem- had already been members of mm-hmm. Bellow First. Um, we have a, a pastor at our church who is a recovering addict. And uh, his his understanding of addiction is we really shouldn't only celebrate recovery. We need to be celebrating re-recovery and re-recovery and re-recovery, mm. um, which is what helped form my uh, response to the man several years ago who said I was high when I got baptized. Mm. Because addictions, being what they are, are just so difficult. And the stat is 80% of those who recover fail again. Mm. And so he said, we need to be celebrating every recovery, every time. Um, which, again, that that's, a, that's its own soteriology, mm-hmm. I think, right? So, and it kind of speaks against this transactional nature of salvation, which is a one and done thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, churches that want to invite people into the life of Christ need to be relational, formational, do you want to say it? Do you want to say that? I'll say it. Works for me. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of work. Could it also, though, be a load off a pastor's shoulders, right? It's not just the pastor's job to preach to 10,000 and get them to convert. Yeah. Um, the pastor is not an individual, but in a community, uh, working with and for others um, in a middle in a big old mess that is not their full responsibility, um, uh, but which uh, they are free to lead, right? In love, I don't know. I like to hope they're mine. Yeah, I, mean, I, I like that better. The call is on the work of the people. The pastor mm-hmm. is one equipper, mm-hmm. just one equipper of um, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and that's the cause for the people to own the work. Priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. That's right. I have so appreciated the conversation today, um, and we need to keep talking about it. And next time we will be talking about how a relational, formational soteriology impacts how we worship on Sunday mornings, which is one of the first things that believers do together. And thanks so much for listening, friends. We're always grateful. Uh, We love hearing from you. Thank you so much for your notes. Uh, Visit us at thepastorstable.com if you want to engage further in conversation. And if this episode encouraged you, if it stretched you in any way, we hope that you'll you'll share. Uh, Share with a friend or another pastor, because we really believe um, that these conversations uh, matter. We we want to call pastors... um, to live out their theology in robust uh, and meaningful ways. 
And so, friends, wherever you are today, may the grace of God bless you and keep you. And may God bless you um, in the gift and the grace of ministry. Until next time.